Well, good morning. Hey, when you came in, you received a bulletin. It says a lot of great information about what's coming up in the church. All of our uh, winter, spring programs are kicking off. And today, up before our mom's next table is set up. If you're a mom, have kids, no matter what age your kids are, you just need encouragement. It's an evening program that meets uh, twice a month on Tuesday nights. And you can stop out in the lobby right across from the coffee bar and get information. You can register uh, to be part of mom's next. Also, well-care classes are starting up real soon. If you'd like to participate in one of those, you're more than welcome to get signed up. I want to pause uh, before I get into the message today, just to spend a moment in prayer for two critical needs. Uh, first of all, I received word recently of a, a fellow pastor here in the Fountain Valley. His wife is struggling with cancer. And it's the, the church right behind us, uh, Calvary Fellowship. And I know the pastor, John Warnshing, and his wife, Brandy, is dealing with um, She's in a real big battle with cancer right now. They have, I don't know how many kids, six, seven kids. They have a whole army of kids and a lot of responsibilities. But um, I'm going to stand with them in prayer this morning. And while I'm praying, also just take some time to pray over our stubborn government leaders. <laughs> and this uh, stalemate and get out of leading our country. So I'm going to ask of you, but even while the offering is still being received, go ahead and stand and join me. And you can either open your hands in prayer, or you can uh, look up to heaven in prayer, or maybe you want to kind of utter in your own words and amen, or uh, your own, your own words to add to the prayer that I'm going to give. But there's power that people come together in prayer. So Father, we come before you. Thank you for the privilege in Jesus' name that we have to come before your throne to bring these precious requests. And Lord, I, I want to lift up to you a brand new born Lord, I thank you for just her faithfulness to you, her love for John, for her kids. Lord, she's in a time of struggle right now. And would you be her great physician? Would you bring healing? Would you cause her body to respond favorably to every treatment that's given to her? Would you cause her father to have hope and strength? Lord, would you energize this incredible body that has the ability to fight off the infections and things, to fight off this this invader that's in her body, this thing called cancer. And I pray, Lord, that she'd be fully healed, that she could grow to see her kids graduate, get married, and see grandkids, Father, that she could continue to be a partner to John and his wonderful ministry here in the Fountain Valley, Lord. So we commit them to you in Jesus' name. And also, Father, I lift up to you our government leaders. Lord, I pray for humility. I pray for wisdom. I pray, Lord, that there would be actually concern for the other side, that, that this is not about one side winning or one man or one woman winning. This is about uh, people who are, who are representing our nation. And I pray, Lord, that they would uh, have the mindset to come together to find a solution that, that moves us in the direction of solving the problems we have in our culture and, and ultimately gets our people right back to work and that provides paychecks for those government workers to take care of their families, Lord. So we thank you for our government leaders, Lord, but we know they need your help. They desperately need your help. I pray by this time tomorrow, Lord, that that, that would be resolved and that um, we can focus in the future resolving some other bigger issues. And so, Lord, we, we know you tell us in Scripture. Pray for those in authority. And we do that today in the precious name of your Son, Jesus. God's people said, Amen. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Hey, today I want to talk to you initially about the, the household names that have become so common to us of the people who have impacted Christianity in great ways. And in my generation, I don't think anybody's had the impact of Dr. Lily Grant. Dr. Grant has been advisor to every president since World War II. He's known around the world for his crusades. Hundreds of thousands of people have followed the Lord through his ministry. He's a man of incredible integrity. And Billy Graham, 
while he was living here on earth, he passed away about a year ago. He's um, probably the person we would hold up as that. He's had the most significant religious impact over the past generation. But if I go back 500 years, there's another man that you need to know about whose impact is even felt today. His name was Martin Luther. He was a Catholic monk, a professor, a composer, and he was going through a personal struggle with some of the practices and teachings of the Catholic Church. They had become corrupt, they had become really abusive of people, and in his rebellion against them, he, he went back to the scriptures to find out what does actually the Bible teach. And a lot of um, good things came out of the Reformation, some bad things, but some of the good things that even affect us today are these. First of all, the priesthood of all believers, that you don't need a priest in order to connect with God. You have direct access to God, and that, that you have a calling to serve that God. That came out of the Reformation. The second thing came out was the ability to have the Bible in your hands. Up to that point, the scriptures were in the hands of the clergy. You, didn't, you couldn't go home and read the Bible. And Bibles began to be printed and distributed, and, and religious leaders thought this was going to lead to chaos and it led to a lot of freedom. Uh, as people began to really get to know God through His Word. And then thirdly, this, this teaching that salvation is by grace through faith. That we enter a relationship with God, not based on what we do, what we've accomplished, or the rituals we've performed, but simply by trusting Jesus, what He did for us on the cross, and uh, accepting God's grace. And those all came out of the Reformation. It had such a big impact that it affected not only the religious world, but the political and economic world of Europe, and it still ripples in its effect to today. Now, there was a man in 1934, a Baptist pastor, who went to Germany and was so impacted by the story of this man's life that he actually his name, from Michael to Martin Luther, and changed the name of his son from Michael to Martin Luther Jr. And tomorrow we celebrate his, that son who grew up to be another Baptist pastor, his legacy, because Martin Luther King Jr. became a leading advocate of the Civil Rights Movement. And so tomorrow we celebrate the impact this pastor has had on our generation. But nobody has had the impact of the man we look at today in the Bible. We don't even know his last name. You just know his name is Abram or Abraham. And three of the world's major religions, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, all trace their roots back to this man. Now, tracing roots is important. It's important to know where we come from. That's why we're going back to Genesis. Where did this all begin? You know, where did everything start? Well, your beginning, my beginning, physically, began with a couple in the Garden of Eden named Adam and Eve. That's our, that's our physical human roots. But our spiritual roots really find their place in this man named Abraham and how he responded to God and what God called him to do. And so if you've been following along in our Bible reading plan, we've been uh, reading through five chapters a week in the book of Genesis. You should have read chapters 11 through 15 this week. If you want to start in with us and catch up or just start reading chapter 16 tomorrow, you can read 16 through uh, 20 for next Sunday. And... In this story, we, we learn about this man and his encounters with God. And I just want to remind you, the Bible isn't so much a collection of stories about men. It's really a story about God and how God relates to us. Because people will respond to God differently, but I want to tell you this. The God that responds to Abraham is the same God that responds to David, that responds to Jesus, that responds to you and me. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so through the Bible, we actually get to know who this God is. And what he's like. And you may say, like, well, Pastor, I don't really need to know about Abraham. I know Jesus. Good, because knowing Abraham doesn't save you. Knowing Jesus does. 
But knowing Abraham and his story will help you understand this big thing that God's doing in the world and your part in it. Because here's what you need to know. That God is doing something really big in this world and he's inviting you and me to be a part of it. It's something that's that's bigger than you can imagine. Global. And it's eternal uh, in its scope. And so we're going to look at that story today. We'll, we'll follow up next week as we look at this man, Abraham, a little bit more. But I want to focus on two particular stories and how they relate to us. Um, the first one is found in Genesis chapter 12. Like Abraham, God issues to you and me a call. A call. Now we come to the 12th chapter of Genesis. We've already looked at chapters 1 and 2 with all the good news. God made the world. God made uh, everything beautiful. But chapter 3, we start to see things unravel. Adam and Eve listened to the serpent. They sinned. Then, then we learn later, their son, Cain, murders their son, Abel. And then we find these, what seem to be angelic beings, intermingling with human women, and having offspring. And then, and then God's so frustrated with the creation he's made that he decides to wipe the slate clean through Noah and the flood. And start again with just Noah and his family. But even after Noah and his family start to multiply, and the world starts to fill up again. People get this attitude that we want to do our thing, not God's thing. And so at this place called the Tower of Babel, God has to um, come and confuse their languages so they'll obey his command to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth. And so now they leave and they spread out into all these regions. Well, there was a man named Terah who lives in Mesopotamia, which is uh, later Babylon, that area. He, he picks up his family and leaves, and his intent is to go to Canaan. But on the way to Canaan, which is directly to the west, they go up north along the uh, Euphrates River and, and land in a place called Haran, or Haran. And he just decides, that's where, that's where I'm going to settle. He settles in that place. It's modern-day Turkey. In fact, that, that site is still known in modern-day Turkey, even bears um, that name as part of the city's name, still there. Raises his family with his three sons and their wives, and yet one of the sons um, has, a, has a boy. Little boy named Lot, and then the dad dies. And so we have Terah, Abraham, his, his brother Nahor, and their wives, and then their their nephew, Lot. They're all living there in Haran when God decides to speak to Abram. And here's where God speaks. Chapter 12, starting with verse 1. And now the Lord said to Abram, by the way, I may call him Abram or Abraham. Back and forth. You can do that too. We just know it's the same dude, okay? He's called Abram here, but later on we'll find his name's going to get changed. But put a, put a couple more letters in there. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and you and all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So that makes Abram. For this incredible assignment. And we don't know why he picks him. It doesn't say why Abram qualified to be chosen by God for a special mission. But we do know this about God. God often picks the people that are the most unlikely to do his work. Like when God's looking for a king, and he goes to the family of Jesse, and they look at all the different sons who look to be fit to be the next king. God bypasses all of them, and he gets down to a little teenager named David, and says, that's the one I want. And he reminds uh, Samuel, that God does not look on the outside as man looks. God looks at the heart. So God's looking for something different than we look for. And we see that in Mary being chosen to be the mother of Jesus. I mean, Mary's just a pretty common teenage girl. Not even married yet. 
And then we look at the disciples, fishermen, common people. You know, it says in the book of Corinthians, the very first chapter of 1 Corinthians, that God does not choose the worldly wise, or those of noble birth, or the powerful, but instead God chooses those who are kind of forgotten, the nobodies. And he chooses them to do his bidding. And when you think about it, it makes sense, because God doesn't want people who are about themselves. God wants people who say, like, I don't have much to offer God. And God says, good, because everything, everything you're going to get is from me. And therefore, I get the glory. And that's the kind of people God uses. And so God tells Abram to go. Very simple command. Go. He doesn't say, hey, I'd like you to think about knowing. Or, Abram, will you consider this? He just tells him to go. No explanation, nothing else. Just go. And, and as you go... I will show you the place where I'm taking you. You need to know this. The going precedes the showing. You start going, and while you're going, I'll do the showing of what it is I want to reveal to you. And we would love to flip it around. In fact, we often tell God, God, you show me. Show me what you want me to do. Show me what it's going to be like. Show me where I'm going. Lay it all out for me. And then I'll go. And God says, I don't play that game. Because what you're going to do is stand back and pick apart my plan. I want you to walk by faith. I want you to know that I'm a good guy. I want you to know that I'm trustworthy and that you start moving. And, and you need to know this, that when God is moving in your life, that, that, that you have to be careful not to put the brakes on and say, God, I would do that if I knew how it all played out. If I knew how this all would work out, then I could say yes. And God says, no, no. Because what I want most from you is your faith. Now, I want you to know I'm a good God because look at the promises God makes. All the I will statements. He says, I will show you, I will make of you a great nation, I will bless you and make your name great, I will bless those who bless you, I will curse those who dishonor you. I will, I will, I will. All these things that I will do if you get moving. And so, God's reminding him, I'm God who loves to bless. In fact, that word bless or blessing comes up repeatedly in here. I want to bless you. I want to bless those who bless you. And I want to bless you so that you will be a blessing, which is kind of the pinnacle of this promise. I not only want to bless you, Abraham, I want to bless you so that in the end, there's a time coming when people all around this earth will look back and say, I'm blessed because of what Abraham did. I'm blessed because of the promise God made to that man. And, and we're seeing it actually fulfilled today because God is, is reaching people all around the world. God wants to form a family, a community, a nation through through whom he can bless, and they will be a blessing to everybody else. And so when you become a Christian, you become part of God's family. But here's where we get it wrong sometimes. We think that God blesses us, and just and, and he's content with that. He just wants to bless me. He does. But he wants to bless you to be a blessing. This is where the Israelites messed up, because you trace through the rest of the Old Testament, it's really the story of one family, the family of Israel, and how God interacted with them. What you'll find out is they struggle just like Adam and Eve with sin constantly. Constantly getting pulled into the patterns of the world around them. And we also find this, that they their minds began to think that because God chose them for this special assignment, they must be pretty special. In fact, more special than anybody else in the world. And so we start getting this attitude of we're better than everybody else. And God doesn't really love those of them. He doesn't like the Ninevites. He doesn't like the Canaanites. He doesn't like the Philistines. He doesn't like the Gentiles. And so we get to the New Testament, 
Even the believers are struggling to love the Gentiles because it's so ingrained in them that God doesn't love those people. He doesn't love the Samaritans. He loves us. He does love you. He loves you to love other people. It's through us, this nation God is forming, that God reaches the rest of the world. So God's plan is to ultimately reach the rest of the world. So what does Abraham do with this? We say in the next verse, verse 4. So Abram went, as the Lord told him, and Lot went with him. It doesn't say it, but Sarah went with him too. And Abram was, was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. So Abraham went to a place he had no idea about. Can you imagine moving to a new city? I mean, when we moved here to Colorado Springs, we began to look online. What is Colorado Springs like? What's the economy? What's the cost of living? What's the best neighborhood to live in? What are the better schools? You know, all that kind of stuff. You start to evaluate. Even when we go on vacation, we start to go on TripAdvisor. And we start looking at different things you can do and different experiences you can have. And the reviews. What people think of it. Was it good? Was it bad? Why should you do this? Why should you not do that? Abraham didn't do any of it. He doesn't have pictures. He, he doesn't have stories of people who've been there, as far as we know. He, he doesn't have reviews of where he's going to. And he goes anyway. And because of him going, he is identified as the one who epitomizes the kind of faith that God desires. In fact, when you read through the New Testament and the references to Abraham, that's the, that's the thing they bring out the most, is Abraham's faith. And how it models the faith that God wants of all of us. And so... He goes, and, and he doesn't know where he's going, but he knows who is going with him. See, the right response is always to trust God and walk by faith. It's always the right response. Say yes to God. God, I trust you. I'll go where you want me to go. In the book of Hebrews, which lists in chapter 11, heroes of the faith, one of those that are listed first is Abraham. It says, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. That's what made it faith. If he knew where he was going, it wouldn't require faith. Faith is going into the unknown. It's going into uncharted waters. It requires faith. It's scary. The guy told me last service. He goes, Pastor, you know, God's been telling me for a while what he wants me to do, and I've resisted because I was afraid. Good. Yeah. You can tell it's probably from God then. Because if it was comfortable and easy, it likely wouldn't be God calling you. God called Abraham to leave your father's farm. Leave the place where you've grown up, the place that's comfortable and familiar, and go to the place that is unknown, that's unfamiliar, to people who don't know you. You'll, you'll have no reputation there. That's where I want you to go. And I, I really believe this. You cannot stay where you are and walk with God. You cannot stay still and walk with God. God is always moving. One of the things that I learned in, in this church years ago, when we were on Aspen Drive, we did a church-wide study called Experiencing God. And in that study was one principle that, that changed my thinking forever. And it was this. God is always at work around you. And he's seeking to invite you to partner with him in that work. See, for all my Christian life, I've been told that God has a will for my life. And I should really pursue to, to discover what that will is. So I'd always pray, you know, God, show me what your will is for my life. And I learned through that study to pray differently. To simply pray this, God, what is your will? <coughs> what is your will? <coughs> Period. You know, and, and if that's your will, if I discover your will, would you let me be part of it? See, God isn't, I don't think God's that interested in, in 
my life and what I want to do. He cares a lot about his plan to reach the ends of the earth and wants me to find my purpose and meaning in his plan. See, I, I could get invited to work for Google or Amazon or Microsoft or some great corporation, leading successful companies around the world. People would, would give, give their right arm sometimes to work for those companies. But I'll tell you, honestly, I wouldn't trade being a pastor to work for any of them. Because what we're doing, not just as pastors but as Christians, what we're doing on this earth, not only blesses people everywhere, but has eternal benefits. And so we get privileged. God says, I want to I want to recruit you onto my team. I want to make you part of my family so you can go out there and tell people how wonderful and awesome I am. In the New Testament, we find a very similar call given to believers. It was given to the disciples after Jesus rose from the dead before he ascended to heaven. It's called the Great Commission. It's found in Matthew chapter 28. In that great commission, Jesus says, All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Then he says this, Therefore, get ready, go. Therefore, go. Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then he taps in there, and I will promise. And I will be with you always. The very end of the age. So, in the process of going, God says, You will experience my presence in a very powerful way. Go. Don't ask a lot of questions. Just go. What that means for you and me is we should always be on the go. And that means we should always be on the lookout for people that we can uh, share the love of Christ with. It might be people in your own family. It could be your, your neighbors. It could be the kid in class with you or plays on the sports team with you. Kid in college with you. The one who works down the aisle from you across the office from you. It's the person who's down the street from you. We're called to go beyond even our own communities. Missions is a big deal at our church. Going outside of ourselves, even to the far parts of the earth. Scott Price shared this week with our staff how when God called his family to go to Tanzania, a place they'd never been to before. How scary it was and frightening. And yet, through that process, God grew their faith. And today there are churches planted all around the fringes of Tanzania. The people called the Bush people live out in the tribal regions in, in mud huts. And so many of these places now have churches with leaders who are trained by the ministry the Price has established in Arusha, Tanzania. And then Scott told us as a staff, he said, he said, all those churches that were planted, all those people who have been baptized, who found the Lord, who are walking with Jesus today, it's very possible none of that would have happened had not Pikesby Christian Church sent them to Tanzania. In two weeks, I'll be going to Myanmar, which is Burma, used to be called Burma, and we'll be helping to train some church leaders, some pastors, Burma is 90% Buddhist. Less than 5% of the people are Christian. There are, there are many people in, in that country who've never heard the name of Jesus, who have no clue what the gospel is. And we have the privilege of going and pouring into some pastors and then we'll go out back to their villages and teach their people about Jesus. And there may come a time way down the road where we'll find because of what, what Pepsi did in sending us there. Hopefully this won't be the only time we'll go there. But going to that place and, and, and investing in these people, that, that many will come to know Jesus because of what we've done. See, God, God has a desire to expand the family. I believe when, when God made this promise to Abraham and said, I'll make your family great, some, some would debate me on this, but I, I would challenge you. In the New Testament, that, that people group is the family of God. Because, because the people who truly are, are connected to Abraham aren't connected genetically. They're connected by the strand of faith. Read Romans 4. 
It's not circumcision. It's not, it's not the blood of, Ab- the blood of Abraham in your genes that's, that makes you a member of the family of God. It's walking in faith like Abraham. When we walk in faith like him, we're connected. And we become part of that family. Now, you probably have heard in sports that in order to help the fans to be like a part of a big family, we, we use the word nation now. So I hear it all the time. You know, Bronco Nation or Packer Nation, you know, Patriot Nation. You know, we have all these nations because because it's, it gives a feeling of I'm part of a bigger community, part of this family that all kind of believes the same way. Well, listen to this description of the church in 1 Peter 2, 2 verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy what? Nation! We're a holy nation! A people for his own possession. We belong to God. Isn't that a blessing? We belong to him. We are his people, his nation. But it doesn't end there. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are blessed to be a blessing to lift up the name of Jesus in a dark world and, and let that world know that there is God who sent his son to die for you, to bring hope and healing and freedom to you. That's what we were called to be part of. We're blessed to be a, a blessing. Well, the story of Abraham goes on. He goes down to Canaan and he settles there. says he built some altars. Back then, there weren't church buildings, there weren't places of worship, and so they, they would build altars and call on the name of the Lord in that place. And then a famine hits, and he goes to Egypt and takes Lot and his wife Sarah there. Though, though when he goes to Egypt, he's afraid because Sarah's a pretty hot woman, 75 year old woman. And so he feels like, like someone's going to want her, so he, and they're, they're going to kill Abraham to get her. So he just tells her, Well, that's my sister. Pretty cute sister. Pharaoh says, You're not righteous, dude. I want her as my wife. So Pharaoh takes her, and then the curse falls upon Pharaoh, and Pharaoh realizes that something's going on that, that, that he doesn't know about, finds out from Abraham that he lied. So then he sends Sarah back to Abraham, tells him to leave, gives him all kinds of riches to go, and Abraham and his um, nephew Lot and Sarah leave. And over the course of time, their flocks multiply, they have so much wealth now as farmers, they can't even stay in the same place, there's not enough grass to feed all the animals. And so Lot goes over to this place called the Jordan Valley, which is near a couple cities called Sodom and Gomorrah, which is a later story. And then we have Abraham, which settles in the land of Canaan. And uh, there's some other events that happen there. But when we come to chapter 15, Abraham is struggling with this promise. Some time has passed. He's really wondering, God, how are you going to fulfill this promise to me? I mean, you, you say I'm going to be a great nation. In order to, be, to make a great nation, I've got to be a great grandpa first. I don't even have kids. So something needs to happen. So like Abraham, we're going to learn that God invites you and me into a covenant relationship. What's called a covenant. We begin to hear about that, the, the setting for it in chapter 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. So Abram, you're not by yourself. I'm with you. I'm fighting for you. But that's not enough. Abram says, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. There's a guy in my house, but he's not even my son. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir, for your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven, number the stars, if you're able to number them. And he said to them, so shall your offspring be. So Abram, look up in the sky. Try to count the stars. You're going to have as many kids, grandkids, great-grandkids, great-great-grandkids, great-great-great-grandkids, 
There'll be so many down the road, you can't even count them. And Abram's response, he believed the Lord. God counted it to him as righteousness. There it is, the faith again. God, I trust you. I trust you that your word is true. So, he expresses his commitment to God, and then God expresses his commitment to Abram in what's called a covenant. We see that in verse 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I will give this land, from the river of, of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gergesites, and the Jebusites, and the Termites. They're all there. Wherever they are, that's going to be your place. So now he's expanding their promise to say, you know, I don't think I have great people, you have great land. Great land in which they can live. And to assure you of my commitment to this, I'm going to enter into a covenant with you. But this is a very beautiful Bible word. It's similar to a contract in that two parties enter into a binding agreement with each other. But in a contract, one, we always we negotiate the terms of the contract, and the contract is only as good as the people and their character. You probably have contracts that have been broken. And in a contract, probably the most significant thing is, in a contract, you can hold the other person accountable for what they promised to do. So if you sign a contract, here's what you said you're going to do, and if you don't do it, I'm going to be pretty ticked off at you. Or I might fire you, or I'm not going to pay you. But you told me this, and you didn't do it. A covenant is different. Still two parties come together, but instead of me focused on what you're doing, it's focused on what I'm doing. So in a covenant, I tell you what I will bring to the table, what I'm committing to in this relationship. And I would say that the, the most uh, common example of a covenant in our culture is the marriage covenant. It's not a marriage contract, it's a marriage covenant. Why? Because a man and a woman stand before witnesses before God and say, here's what I'll do. I'll love you, I'll be faithful to you for better or worse. When times are good and times are bad. When you're healthy and when you're sick. When we have money and when we don't money. I will, I will stay committed to you until one of us is pulled away by death. See, I, I never hear couples at, at a wedding say, okay, what are you bringing to the table? Okay, let's negotiate. Do I want a little more from you? No. It's, here's what I'm bringing. Because when two people enter a relationship like that, it's a beautiful thing. I'm going to give you all of me. And the other person says, well, I'm going to give you all of me. That's a beautiful relationship. It's based on mutual love and commitment. And so, uh, the definition that I like about um, the biblical covenants is written by Malcolm Smith. And by the way, covenant was very common in the biblical culture. Way back, you can even read in other cultures. The idea of making a covenant, a binding relationship, is pretty common historically. So a covenant is a binding, unbreakable obligation, he says, between two parties based on unconditional love, sealed by blood and sacred oath, that creates a relationship in which each party is bound by specific undertakings on each other's behalf. The parties to the covenant place themselves under the penalty of divine retribution, should they later attempt to avoid those undertakings. It is a relationship that only can be broken by death. And that's why in a wedding ceremony, and you make the comment, until death separates us, you're saying, and nothing else will separate us. I am committed to this relationship. It's harder and harder to find relationships wanting to be that committed. But that's what a covenant does. I am binding myself to you into a lasting relationship that only can be broken by death. Now, God makes a lot of different covenants in the Bible. There actually was with Noah. You had the sign of the rainbow. We find a covenant with David. 
and then we find in the New Testament what's called the New Covenant. And by the way, your Bible has an Old Testament and a New Testament. The word testament is just another word for covenant. When you think of the New Testament, you should be thinking of the New Covenant, the new relationship. What's, what's new about it? Well, it's a relationship God wants to establish with you, with me, through Jesus Christ. Now, there are several common elements with covenants that are true of the biblical ones and true of the marriage covenant. For example, there's a representative. God makes covenants with individuals, not groups of people. And you become part of the covenant by connecting to that individual. So, for example, remember when, um, this isn't a covenant, but this is a good example of representative leadership. When David fought Goliath, David represented the armies of Israel. Goliath represented the Philistines. Whichever man won, won for his country, won for his people, won for everybody else. And so when David defeated Goliath, all these soldiers who were too afraid to fight and sitting on their swords for a week, they, they said, we won! We won! No, you didn't do anything. I know, but we're connected to David. David's our guy, so we won! It's like the guy that sits on the bench during the football game, never plays one play, and at the end of the game, and his team wins, he goes, we won! Right? Because he's connected to the entity. And when you're connected to that person, you're connected to the covenant. And so when you're connected to Jesus, you're connected to the covenant. He's the, he's the one who establishes the covenant. He's the mediator of the covenant. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 5, it explains it this way. Excuse me, chapter 9, verse 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. This is a new covenant. It's a covenant through Christ. And the reason Jesus could be the, the one that represents us is because Jesus did something we couldn't do. He lived a perfect life. So, so Jesus took on himself our, our sinful image. So that we could take on his image of perfection. That when God looks at us, he looks at us as being totally sin-free. Because Jesus took his, our sin upon himself. He was our representative who stood in our place, suffered our death for us. And so Jesus established this new covenant, this new covenant in his blood, in his death on the cross. There are promises in these covenants. Promises of, of what one bring to the table talk a little bit about that. There are responsibilities. Um, this, is, this is what kind of goes along with the promises of what I will do. And so God promises, for example, I promise to forgive your sins. I promise to be with you always. I promise to, um, to guide you through my Holy Spirit. I promise to take you into heaven with me forever. I promise to give you victory over the enemies. These are things that God can do. There is an oath. And the oath is a serious commitment. I'm not going to read the story, but I want, I want to explain it to you. In this day that God established the covenant with Abraham, he told Abraham to get some animals, to get a heifer, a goat, and a ram, and then to kill them. And this sounds kind of gross, but to split their bodies down the middle, put one half here and one half here, with a space in between these carcasses. And as the night settled and it became dark, there, there rose a torch the flame and a smoking fiery pot that passed through the, the carcasses. But what does that mean? It's kind of a weird picture. Well, in the Old Testament, God's presence is commonly pictured in fire. The burning bush, you know, the, the mountain with fire, and you know, the, uh, 
the, the fire by day and the cloud by or the cloud by day and the fire by night. God's presence is often pictured in fire, and so it says that God God walked in His presence in the midst of Abraham, right between those dead bodies. And this is true of, of so many covenants. This statement: I am so committed to this relationship. I'm going to walk through these animals, through their dead bodies, to show if I violate this covenant, may I be like them. May I be killed like they are killed for my unfaithfulness to you. It's a pretty serious commitment when you think of the covenant. Wouldn't it be cool at weddings after the vows are expressed, there's a carcass on the ground, it's okay, we're just going to walk through there. If, I, if I'm unfaithful to you, may that happen to me, which is after that animal. Pretty serious, right? This is a covenant. This is the kind of commitment God has to us. God's saying, I would rather die than break my covenant to you. It's a serious commitment. And then there's a sign of the covenant. We'll learn next week at circumcision. This only applies to the males. In this, but men and women could join the family of Israel, but the males had to be circumcised. It was a marking. Um, in the New Testament, we, we read that there's a the sign of the New Testament, the sign of baptism. That those who enter into the covenant with God go through the waters of baptism and symbolize I'm part of this new family. On my hand, I have a ring. It's a symbol. It's a symbol of the covenant I have with my wife. Those are important. There's one other thing that we find common. It's a meal. Meals often coincide with these covenant makings, making events. And I would say that a rear visual symbol of this or picture of this is a wedding. Now, almost every wedding I've ever been to will be this commitment of the bride and groom, and afterwards there'll be a meal. And we sit down and we feast. There's joy, there's celebration of the covenant we just witnessed. But isn't it interesting that in the New Testament, Jesus established a meal that goes along with his covenant. It's a meal called the Lord's Supper. And I'm going to ask our ushers to go ahead and go back and bring it ready to take the Lord's Supper together. But I want to challenge you to think of it a little bit differently today. Because Jesus has done something so incredible to invite you and me into this relationship. It is a serious commitment he makes to us. It's as serious as a marriage. You are kind of getting married to Jesus when you accept him as your Savior and Lord. And here's what Jesus said about what we're about to do in Luke chapter 22. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. See, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper as a church, I don't know how you approach it. Sometimes people look at it as a little snack break right before the sermon. Some, some you look at it as, as, as just something to get out of the way to do the more important things. I know some people like to check on their phone or talk to their friends during the communion time. But I would encourage you to do this. That, that not only today, but every Sunday when communion is passed, pause and think, where else in the world is there a God who says to his people, I am so committed to you that I'm going to offer this celebratory meal where my son's body was broken for you. And my son's blood was shed for you. Because he wants to enter into a binding, lasting, tight-knit relationship called covenant. That's what we need to do. What does God require of us? Not perfection. None of us are perfect. What God asks for us is faith and action, which translates into faithfulness. The right response to living in covenant with God 
is just faithfulness. It's showing up. It's coming back. It's when you fall, I get back up. I keep moving forward. I keep walking with the Lord. I'm not perfect. Abraham wasn't perfect. David wasn't perfect. But they were men after God's own heart. They were friends of God because they picked themselves up and just walked in toward God. Communion's a great time to kind of re reorient yourself back to God humble yourself So as I pray, I want to invite the ushers to come. They'll pass trays to you. Take a piece of the bread and know this body. His body is broken for you. Take the cup drink it with great gratitude for the fact that this awesome God who made this world says, I want to be bound with you in this lasting relationship and give him thanks. So Father, thank you so much for sending Jesus. I thank you, Lord, that in our rebellion, sometimes in our stupidity, you still invaded our lives. And, and try to communicate in so many ways how committed you are to us. You are committed not just to walk through the dead bodies, but to go to a cross for us and be that dead body so that we could be forgiven. I pray, Lord, that we would cherish that privilege we have, even right now. Eat these elements with great gratitude. So we do so in Jesus' name.